0: Let me tell you something, two fish were swimming along one morning and they passed by an older fish. The older fish said to them, morning boys, how's the water today? They said, oh, good morning, yes, very good, fine, how are you, and they kept going. A few moments later, one of the fish turned to the other and said, what in the world is water? I hope you find that amusing. The insight of that story is for these fish, being in water is so normal that they don't even know about it because it's all they've known. Today, we are going to be looking at water. To quote David Foster Wallace, this is water. This is something so commonplace, so pervasive, so immersive that we have no clue what it is. If you think about it for a second, what are some examples of of this in your own life? Something you don't know about because it's so normal. I think of the rotation of the earth. That's always weird to think about. Gravity, for example. In this passage today, we're actually looking at two such examples of water. We're looking at an example in the human position and also the human condition. Where we are and who we are. Let's take a look. Let's read it together. This is Romans chapter one, starting in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Now let's go to the other side. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Did you catch it? Did you see it? God's word is saying there's something about us, who we are, and where we are, the function of our terrain and our property as people, that's so common, it's so obvious, and we've never caught it before. What's strange is, at the very start of this passage we're looking at today, it begins with the word for. Let me circle that. Uh, For. That's Kind of like beginning a paragraph with the word because or therefore or consequently. But that means that this is referring to what came before it. This is part of a chain of reasoning that has preceded it and is also going to follow after it. So what came before it? Let's, let's summarize the series briefly. We are in week five of our Roman series. And we saw at the outset that Paul identified himself as a servant who is sent and set apart. In verses 7 to 15, he addressed the church in Rome and he gently reminded them that the mission is mutual, that the body of Christ is all in the same team and that this should breed support and camaraderie and encouragement and should quell feelings of entitlement or jealousy. And then last week, Pastor Lucas was looking at verses 16 and 17, how... The gospel does not shame Paul, but honors him. Specifically that it's the power of salvation to all who believe. The gospel, the good news is salvation, the saving thing to those who believe. And this salvation, it doesn't merely refer to the fact that when you pass away your disembodied consciousness will float up to heaven. That's a very shallow and reductionistic understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Rather, it's much more comprehensive. This is God's redeeming all things back to himself through the atonement of Christ. And now we are part of this commission through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. So it's not just the fact that we're saved from the eternal consequences of our sin. That's true, but it's much more comprehensive than that. And this week, Paul is explaining why we need the gospel why we need salvation. Salvation means saving, and you only need saving if there's something to be saved from. If I'm in my living room, and I'm sitting down, relaxing, The Bachelor, we all know, someone kicks down my door and says, I'm saving you. Uh, Would you mind putting the door back up and going away? I'm, I'm occupied right now. But if my apartment's on fire, someone kicks down the door and says, I'm saving you, they would be my savior. So Paul is giving an explanation for why the gospel is the power of salvation to all who believe. This is the four here. We see the word four in a couple other places. The word four is here. There we go. The word four is here. And on the other side, the word four is here. Yeah. Good. So we see the main point and these other fours indicate supporting points. This is kind of like in an essay, uh, you make your main point. If I say, Romeo is a lousy boyfriend. And then I give three supporting points. I say, "Mm, he doesn't make a lot of time for Juliet. When they are together, he's emotionally unavailable and he skips leg day, cardinal sins, right? In this case, Paul's making his main point. He's offering three supporting points. It's convenient for me, three points. I just need a story, a couple jokes, and I got the sermon. But maybe I'll say something at the outset. I've found this passage challenging to engage with for at least two different reasons. Firstly, there's some intellectual hurdles that are present with this passage. It kind of lends itself to misuse. It's easy to misuse this passage. Something, there's something similar if you look at Freudian psychoanalysis. Probably didn't think I was going there. But in Freudian psychoanalysis, it has the problem that it's hard to falsify. It's hard to prove wrong. So if Freud says, you're attracted to your mother, and I say, no, no, I'm not. And he says, yes, you are. Ha ha, you're repressing it, which is what you would do if you were attracted to your mother. Checkmate, I got you. Do you see how, you can't really prove it wrong. It's similar with this. People say you're suppressing the truth. and No, I'm not, you're suppressing it, stop suppressing. And if used incorrectly, this passage could lend itself to circular forms of reasoning. It's also a very contentious passage in the philosophy of religion domain when it comes to questions about divine hiddenness. People say, God's hidden. People say, no, he's actually everywhere. Or exclusivism, how can Jesus be the only way? What if people haven't heard about Jesus? No, look, everyone's heard about Jesus. It's kind of contentious. I do research in these areas. I think about these things. A few weeks ago, I was laying awake at night, wrestling with these verses in my head, trying to get a grasp of it. The next morning, I got the email from Bayview Glen saying, you're preaching on these verses. And I thought, no, thank you. No thank you Lord, but he had other plans. So there's intellectual hurdles to overcome. There's also moral hurdles to overcome. I'm kind of uncomfortable with the concept of wrath. It's not something that I aspire to. It's not a trait that we all want to cultivate in ourselves. Right? You don't say, so tell me, how is he? What's he like? Well, he's wrathful, he's judgmental, he plays scary music on the organ, Been in it. no, that's not what we want. So there's also some, mm, some heebie-jeebies that have to be overcome here, some moral obstacles. But I think as God's people approaching God's word, we ought to have humility and courage, trusting it to be perfect, and complete and whole in everything it says. And so even if there's some work to be done, some objections to overcome, I think it's worth our time. Augustine says this, if you believe what you like in the gospel and reject what you don't like, it is not the gospel you believe, but yourself. So let's have courage and humility today as we approach God's word. Let's get into it. Starting at verse 18, Romans 1, for the wrath of God. Let's stop right there. Wrath. If we don't understand what wrath means, the rest of the passage is kind of going to be confusing. Wrath, the word anger in the New Testament, there's two different Greek words that are used for it. One of them is used here, and it's not what we think of when we think of wrath. Uh, The word in the Greek, one of the words that's used for anger is the word, Thymus, themus, say it how you want. It's the word that we get thermometer from and also thermos. It's the anger that burns red hot and usually overflows in lashing out and exploding. Here's an example. Let's say you're at the grocery store with your mother looking at fruits and vegetables. You're looking at a bag of apples, kind of expensive, but I'll treat myself. And out of the corner of the eye, you see someone walk up to your mother and open hand, slap her in the face. What would you do? I would want to lay hands on that person and not to pray. That is thymus. That is the red hot anger. And that is not the word that is used here. Paul is not presenting God as an angry deity who's just Uh, blowing up and out of proportion and thumping anything within arm's reach. The word that's used here denotes a different style of anger that's even hard for me to understand as a human. It's a controlled response. It's a settled, abiding anger. So God's wrath, I have to summarize this, is perfect, settled, and controlled. If you want a fast and loose definition, God's wrath is the response, a response of love to sin. So that's one thing to keep in mind. The other thing to keep in mind is that God's wrath is parallel to God's righteousness. If you could see verse 16 and 17, you can't, it's not there. Uh, Verse 17 opens saying, for the righteousness of God is revealed in blank. And the verse following it says, for the wrath of God is revealed and it keeps on going. Revealed in both cases, righteousness and wrath. These are parallel to each other. If you remember the Jonah series, we talked about how God's mercy and God's justice are conceptually intertwined. So too in this case, God's righteousness and God's wrath are counterparts of each other. So this is the quality of God's wrath. The object of God's wrath, what is it aimed towards? If we look, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Ungodliness and unrighteousness. These are affronts on God's majesty and God's character. So some scholars have seen this as referring to the kind of the twofold distinction within the 10 commandments. The first few commandments are referring to humanity's vertical relationship with God, how we ought to respond to him, and the following commandments, our horizontal relationship with creation, how we ought to respond to each other. Similarly, Jesus, when he's asked, what is the greatest commandment? He says, firstly, love God. Secondly, love your neighbor. So we see, to summarize this, that the wrath of God is perfect in its quality and in its object. Paul is making the claim that God's wrath is earned. Now, let's keep going. The the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So this is our position as humans. This is part one of the water. Part two is who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. This is our condition. We're being said to be the type of creatures who know something and are suppressing it. Specifically, we know the truth. What is this? Well, truth in the New Testament setting is much broader of a concept than how I would think of it today. When I think of truth, I think of a question on a test and it's either true or false. It's the status of a statement or it's something that I agree to. In the New Testament setting, truth is much broader. It's actually something that must be personally embodied and acted out. It's a truth that is lived. So that's the first understanding of it. And this here says that we all know this truth and choose not to respond. This is a very strong claim. This is one of the intellectual hurdles that I have personally with this. But God's word is saying that on some level, all people are aware of his existence. Now, how do we understand this? Allow me to share just a few resources that I've actually found helpful in this. You can take them or leave them. Exhibit number one, why would we assume that all have an awareness of God? Take the example of Helen Keller. Helen Keller, when she was 19 months old, lost her ability to see and her ability to hear. She had a head fever at the time And when the fever went away, she was deaf and she was blind. Eventually later on, she learned how to communicate amazingly. She even wrote a book called My Religion. And in that book, she talks about her religious knowledge. So when she was a child, she had 60 or so hand signals with her parents. She eventually learned the alphabet by people spelling it out on her hand. And as a child, she was talking with a bishop one day, and the bishop was explaining to her the concept of God. When he had explained this, she said, oh, I know who God is. I had just forgotten his name. Later on, she was writing a letter to that same bishop, and she explained that even before she received the gift of language, she knew who God was. She was aware that in her darkness, she was not alone. And when she learned about names and how to describe things, she learned the name for God, and she said, I know this person. So that's the example of Helen Keller. That's a very, very specific example. Here's something a little bit broader than this. Exhibit number two is the census divinitatis. That's your word of the day. That's just Latin for divine sense. Two great Christian thinkers have, I think, independently put forward an idea along these lines. First was Thomas Aquinas, one of the greatest Christian theologians ever, Also John Calvin, also a very prominent theologian, they both hypothesized that humans may possess a sensus divinitatis. So unlike our physical senses, which allow us to determine and identify features of our physical environment, we as humans have a divine sense within us that allows us to detect God. Currently, modern day philosophers such as Alvin Plantinga Alvin Plantinga is considered to be the greatest natural theologian ever, and that's just making arguments for the existence of God, have also found this plausible and run with it. So intellectually, there seems to be good grounds for assuming that all of humanity has an ability to identify God in our environment. And interestingly, belief in the supernatural globally is an anthropological constant all humans in all people groups have shown some type of response to something greater than them. Uh, even in cognitive science of religion as well, they've identified parts of the human response. And if you're not a believer, right, there's explanations for this as well. Some might say, perhaps this was an adaptive trait that helped with evolution and belief in God is a side product. So there's still work to be done, but without belaboring this point, I just wanna communicate to you that there are good reasons to assume that this is actually quite plausible. Secularism can't seem to scratch humanity's religious itch. Even today, we all still have a longing for the transcendent to be part of something greater than ourselves. And interestingly, A lot of marketing firms have picked up on this. It seems every commercial you see, it looks like the start of a self-help seminar. Do you want to revolutionize your life? Do you want to be part of something greater than yourself? Do you want to break the rules? Eat goldfish crackers. Buy Subaru. Drink smart water. X, Y, and Z. So God's word is saying that our problem isn't with our knowledge. We know enough to be held responsible for it. The problem isn't with our heads, the problem is how we have responded to what's clearly shown. And how have we responded? Well, it says we suppress the truth. Suppress is the continual and aggressive striving against the truth. It's like trying to hold a beach ball underwater. And the effect of it, as it says here, is that their foolish hearts were darkened Claiming to be wise, they became fools. If you look at the book of Proverbs, the wisdom literature in the Bible, fools, similar to the word folly, refers to a moral obtuseness, a persistent and purposeful stubbornness. It's not just lacking a certain fact in the head. And the consequence of this is that, They became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And this threefold distinction between animals, birds, and creeping things, commentators understand this as Paul referring to the fall of all humanity in the creation story with Adam and Eve and the garden. So Paul is saying here that we all know, we all know better and we've chosen not to respond. We've actually turned and worshiped other things. And this is an interesting claim. He's saying that as humans, we are worshiping things. It's not if you worship, but what? So if you don't respond to what God has revealed in reverence, in awe, in worship properly, you're going to do it with something else. And you think, hey, Sawyer, why should I believe you? Well, don't don't believe me just because I'm the guy up on the stage. There are also non-believers who've picked up on this. For example, at the very start of my message, right, I quoted David Foster Wallace, this is water. Later on in that speech, he also talks about this. Let me quote this, David Foster Wallace, not a believer actually, but a very prolific writer. One of the most popular writers in the past few decades. And good writers are excellent at understanding and portraying the human condition. So he says this, here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. He goes on, I'll paraphrase a little bit. If you worship money and things, Is that where you get your meaning from? You'll never have enough. If you worship your body, your appeal, your beauty, you're always going to feel ugly. And as age and time start to take their toll, you're gonna die a thousand deaths along the way. If you worship power, you're always gonna feel weak and scared. You're gonna be seeking more power to try and numb yourself from your own fear. If you worship your intelligence and being smart, you're always gonna feel stupid. You're gonna risk being found out and being shown to be a fraud. And the insidious thing about all of these is not that they're evil or sinful, it's that they're unconscious. It's the way that day to day, they slowly reorient what we're pointing ourselves towards, what we are ultimately valuing or valuing as ultimate. And the so-called real world, the world out there of, man and power and politics, it hums along to this tune, operating in its own little pool of fear and anger and frustration and craving and worship of self. And it's harnessed these forces in a way that's produced an extreme amount of comfort and pleasure and freedom. And so now we all have the freedom of being the lords of our own skull-sized tiny kingdoms, alone in the center of all creation. Idolatry then, to use that churchy word, it's not a finger wagging of getting the wrong answer. Idolatry is a problem of misplaced hope, of misplaced desire. The Greeks defined humanity as homo sapien, that means wise man or thinking thing. But what we see here, is that it might be proper to describe humanity as homo adorans, a worshiping thing. C.S. Lewis says this in The Weight of Glory. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Lewis is saying here that we have a Stockholm syndrome with sin. We keep going back to the thing that keeps hurting us. So to put this maybe in like a chain link, you are what you love And you do what you are. So you do what you love. If you love improperly, you will do improperly. And how do you find out what you love? If you asked me what I love, I would probably say these things. But is that what's actually the case? I would say this. What comes to your mind when you're laying in bed at night in those terrifying moments between when you put the phone down and when you fall asleep? What naturally comes to the front and center? Center. What do you want in this life? Imagine this. Imagine you have a relationship with someone. It's a meaningful relationship. It's actually the most meaningful relationship you could possibly have. You were created, firstly and foremostly, for this relationship in particular. And you decided to see this person once a week. See, not even. You thought about this person once a week. And during this weekly time where you thought about the person, it was always mediated. You were just watching someone talk about this person. So we're a few steps removed. And hopefully, their talking would only last 45 minutes. An hour mm, tops. But if this thing went on for more than an hour, you would actually complain. The whole time you were there, you were just thinking about getting out of there. Do you think this relationship would thrive? Do you think this relationship would flourish? Do you think it's showing you care about this person? No? Then why do I do it? I mean, isn't one of the lessons of these lockdowns that humanity withers in isolation? James K.A. Smith, he puts this better than I do. Being a disciple of Jesus is not primarily a matter of getting the right ideas and doctrines and beliefs into your head in order to guarantee proper behavior. Rather, it's a matter of being the kind of person who loves rightly, who loves God and neighbor and is oriented to the world by the primacy of that love. So God's wrath is being presented in Romans 1, 18 to 23, as the wrath of abandonment. The terrifying reality of giving us what we want. Today is just the justification for this. In the following verses, we're going to be looking at the ramifications of this. Today, we're looking at Paul's reasons for our own self-isolation and provocation of God's response, to evil in the world. Hurt people hurt people. Broken people break things. I'm treating things incorrectly. I'm actually treating everything incorrectly in my life because I'm trying to get from it what it can't give. It can't be my God, but it can show me God. So we are in a state of being unable to be in a right relationship with God. And the only thing that can fix this is God himself So unless God gives me himself, I'm in trouble." And he did. But just like how a fragmented person is unable to receive love, so too we were unable to receive God's gift of love, Jesus, and we had him tortured and executed in the most brutal way we knew at the time. Yet, in the most ironic turn of human history, God used this death as the means of redeeming us back to himself. So now we have our sin, which will be addressed, but God's love is greater than our sin as well. My problem isn't a lack of knowledge, it's a lack of faith, it's a lack of trust, it's a lack of love. This is water, that we are worshiping things. And instead of choosing what's best for us, we have chosen what's worst for us. This is water that you are not all you could be, not all you should be, and by God's grace, not all that you will be. This is water, that you are drowning in sin and you need someone to pull you out. This is water, that there is a God who cares and a God who came. This is water.